Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hey, Kim. Anine, Karen. Quick, wake him. Uh, do you remember Justin Brake? I do remember Justin Brake. He was a reporter at The Independent. Wasn't he the guy at Muskrat Falls in 2016 who followed land defenders onto a hydro facility? And the Inuit were worried their water would basically be poisoned, right? Yeah, that's right. And Justin follows them into the work site to cover the story. And then he ends up facing criminal and civil charges. Um, he did win the case, and the court said, as a reporter, he had a right to be there. Okay, so if the court says that, mm -hmm. why then have there been more journalists arrested after that at other land actions? <laughs> That's a good question. One I've been trying to figure out. Listen, four more journalists were arrested uh, between 2019 and 2022. They're arresting media! Leave the media alone! Uh, Melissa Cox ended up being arrested twice at Lutsuda. Carl Dockstader at Caledonia. Uh, Amber Bracken. And, you know, like dozens of other journalists, when I was at APTN, some of my reporters were stopped at Alton Gas and other places and threatened with arrest if they tried to go in. And a bunch of other journalists uh, inside at Wet'suwet'en and elsewhere were detained and uh, in one case taken and driven 22 miles out away from the land conflict. That's so interesting because you think that that stuff happens to journalists in other countries and not in Canada. And especially not when they're covering an Indigenous issue, right? 
Yeah. But you were an intervener in the Justin Brake case, were you not? I was. Um, I saw immediately that that case was going to be very important. Um, It would impact whether or not we were able to go and cross the barricades and talk to people behind them. So, I mean, I'm not a neutral party in this conversation, right? I've been outspoken about that and others, and I'm not boasting and I'm not apologizing either, but I'm glad you brought it up because I think we should be honest that I come to this episode with a point of view. I really can't wait to hear your viewpoint on all of this, Karen. But before we get to that, I really want to hear from David Moses and more from the song, 22 Ways to Trick a Treaty. Wilfred said, let's not stop there. Why not create reserves? We'll move them out of sight like animals in herds. They may not like it, but who cares? They're drunks and fools. There must be 50 ways to trick a treaty. Duncan said, it's not enough. There's more for us to do. Let's take their children, put them in residential schools. It'll crush their spirit, leave them useless and confused. There must be 50 ways to trick a treaty. 50 ways to trick a treaty Convert them all to Christianity Stop their languages and ceremony We are superiority That's our policy Remove all of their ability To think clearly and logically Strip them of all their dignity Terra nullis, said Cornwallis Manipulated so that we're the key We can exploit them secretly Line our pockets in perpetuity And get their land for free Strip their beliefs of credibility Destroy their culture and community They'll be dysfunctional eventually Pierre, I think we all agree And you know it's their fault anyway For being on our land before we got there I'm Karen Pugliese, Editor-in-Chief of Canada's National Observer Canada Land Back is a co-production from Canada's National Observer and Canada Land. Out of all the things journalists have to cover in Indigenous communities, land actions are the most complicated, involving a tangle of history and relationships that journalists often just trip into unprepared. Landback movements question Canada's legitimacy as a nation and its character as a champion of human rights. Kinesitage, Gustafson Lake. How the media understood these stories mattered. Was the state enforcing the rule of law against armed terrorists? Or was Canada perpetuating violence against people defending their human rights? Journalism is the first draft of history. This episode is not about the land defenses themselves, but about the PR war for control of the story. Hello! Lorraine! Welcome! Good to meet you. Good to meet you too. The Oka Crisis as it was known then, the Gnostagi resistance, as it's known now. Lorraine Pandera is a retired CBC journalist. She pulls out a cardboard box to show me dozens of reporter notebooks and documents, a personal archive from her time covering the standoff. These are, these are my notebooks from that summer. You kept them all? Well, you just never know when someone's going to do a podcast and ask you. <laughs> 
October 90, you see, Lauren Thompson. I was talking to you about Lauren, who was the Gakusas. One could reflect on the fact that in the months before, even the years before, that it had been kind of a quiet environmental controversy where, you know, yes, there had been a protest march the previous year uh, that had, and, and Mohawks and environmentalists had cooperated in that, that march through Oka. They'd been there together. Uh, you know, there were concerns about trees being raised to the ground to make a golf course. They marched on land they say is theirs, 200 Mohawks from the Ghanasatagwe Reservation. They're protesting plans to expand the golf course in Oka. The Mohawks say the plan encroaches on their land. Even the golf course is ours too, but was illegally taken from us through a private bill that was passed in 1959. At that time, I had no idea that what the connection was to the Mohawks who lived in what I understood to be the neighboring community of Ganesdage, really was not aware of the history in any way. It was by accident that Lorraine discovered Mohawk women blocking a road. She was driving back along sleepy Highway 344 that connects Kanisatage to Montreal. The route took her past the controversial golf course and the endangered pine forest. She just happened to glimpse down a dirt path off the side of the highway. She saw a masked woman, a small roadblock, and a sign that read, Mohawk land, keep off. Lorraine pulled in. I stopped to talk to this woman to find out, you know, could I come in, what was going on, and she forbade me from coming in. She said, you know, only Mohawks can enter. She gave me a little bit of the history about this was the pine forest that was in danger, and I got my back up immediately that I wasn't allowed to come in and look around and talk to other people there. Lorraine tells me that from the perspective of media coverage, it's helpful if I think of the Kanisatagi resistance in three acts. So this is Act 1, March to July 11, 1990, a whisper to a scream in the media. Hardly anyone outside the Mohawk communities knew about women blocking this obscure dirt road. There were bigger Indigenous stories. Elijah Harper, an Ojukree MLA in Manitoba, had just filibustered the Meech Lake Accord to death. While the legislators gathered inside, the anger was building outside. We're again being denied access and, and, and to witness what's going on. This is a public building. Meech Lake was a constitutional amendment that would have declared Quebec a distinct society, but completely ignored Indigenous rights. And Cree leader Matthew Kuncombe was leading a huge PR campaign fighting the construction of a hydro dam. We are Indians. We are some of the people who were left out of the Meech Lake Accord. We are the people you never hear about until you want something from us. We are not considered part of the two founding nations of Canada. We are the people you discovered when you discovered Canada. And every time you want to take more from us, you discover us again. The last time we were discovered because Quebec decided to build the largest hydroelectric project in the world on the top of our homes. So a dozen or so people blocking an obscure dirt path in the woods? Not a big story, but it grew. It would become the biggest story in Canada. My name is David Mackay, the host of Hot Politics, a podcast about the things that matter. 
the air you breathe, the food you eat, the information you depend on to make informed decisions. These are the issues we care deeply about at Canada's National Observer, where I work as the deputy managing editor with a smart and dedicated team. As someone who has watched politics up close on Parliament Hill in Ottawa for many years, I saw the spin, the bending of truth, the mudslinging. But I also saw dedicated advocates determined to make a difference. It's this insight and passion I bring to hot politics. Hot? Because we turn up the heat, probing advocates, policymakers, lawmakers, and yes, politicians. So please join me every second Tuesday to be part of an important conversation. Talk to you soon. The Mohawks were not only protesting the golf course extension. Like a horror movie, condos were slated to be built over a Mohawk cemetery. At the centre of it all, a land dispute. The land had been stolen from the Mohawks many times, first by the Doctrine of Discovery, then again by the Selfishan Church, who had resold the land to white settlers. And in 1990, the town of Oka and developers claimed to have title. I've said it before, Indigenous land is never just stolen once. That spring and throughout the summer, the provincial government, the Mohawk traditional government, the Longhouse tried to negotiate a solution, but came to an impasse. The Mohawks say they want to speak to Prime Minister Mulroney. So far, they've been unsuccessful, but they did get some support from the Quebec government. Native Affairs Minister John Chacha asked the mayor to postpone indefinitely any plans to build on land the Mohawks claim is theirs. Are you ready now to abandon the project? No. That's it. Oka's mayor secured an injunction to remove the roadblock and asked police to enforce it. Mohawk people from other communities came to support the land defenders, among them armed warriors. Some local people took up arms for defense. They feared a violent raid as they'd seen in earlier conflicts. That's exactly what happened on July 11, 1990. Only, it was worse than they imagined. At around 6 a.m., the Sûreté de Québec rolled in. About 100 officers, accompanied by a tactical squad. Women stood arm in arm in front of the barricade, and police lost patience. They lobbed a canister of tear gas, then another, and another, then concussion grenades. For reasons that were never made clear, at 8.40 a.m., police opened fire. A few armed Mohawks shot back. In the crossfire, 31-year-old Constable Marcel LeMay was struck and killed. Only a few reporters were on the scene. This tape was recorded by Mohawk journalist Marie David. They're coming in! They're coming in! The cops are in! Cops are in! CBC was also there. What is happening there? You can hear firing. I'm not sure if it's weapons or if it's... Uh, yes, it is. They're firing at us. Uh, I can see... I'm trying to get behind a tree. There were women and children behind the barricades when the attack started, and that only added to the Mohawk rage. What kind of people are you? There's children here, and you're shooting tear gas at us. We're, not, we're unarmed, and you're aiming your weapons at us. What kind of people are you? The woman speaking is Ellen Gabriel, then a young artist and one of the women who blocked the road. She would be chosen to be a spokesperson for the land defenders. 
Reporters across the country referred to the incident as a botched raid, which upset police. That journalist felt what we felt. That journalist understood the human aspect of the story because she was also shot at. Now hundreds of reporters would descend on the small community. Among them, Laureen. International journalists started arriving, Australian Broadcasting, the BBC, New York Times. I mean, everybody was there. The SQ had to turn into this little public relations machine. I mean, Two themes from... would compete for the lead of this story. Clashes of violence and the Mohawk land claim. People here have watched the conflict for the last four months, never thinking it would end like this with such violence. This resident crossed police lines to retrieve her four dogs, an odd sight in the no-man's land between armed police and defiant natives. The police, she says, should never have come. I feel that the police should have minded their own business, give the Indian their land, and everybody could go home and relax. When media speak of a 78-day standoff, July 11th is when they start counting. From a media lens, this is Act Two. Ganesatagi becomes a national story. Journalists are just there like bees to honey, you know? And so, you know, we could turn that on its head and say, had the arms never moved in, had it stayed a small environmental conflict, like the golf course just might have gone ahead. And, and it would be a long-forgotten story, maybe. I don't know. So how far a drive is it? In perfect weather, 45 minutes. Okay. Lorraine and I drive back to the site of the standoff. So at the top of that hill is where the cemetery is and the golf course. They're right next to each other. And that's where the morning of July 11th, when I arrived here at 10.30 in the morning, I was watching a bulldozer, like, smash police cruisers. I remember that. that tape. Yeah. It's peaceful now. Tall pines, wet snow. But back then, Mohawks had dug trenches, moved on to Highway 344, building roadblocks out of felled trees and abandoned police cars. Police had their own barricades surrounding Kanisatagi. The community is home to about a 1,000 souls, Half of them kids. Here's the cemetery right here. He said he's right inside the cemetery, didn't he? Yeah. Okay. Maybe that's... Here we are. Pine Hill. That'll be Danny right there. Oh, flashing his lights at us. That's great. We're meeting someone else who was there in 1990. Someone I know really well, and so does Laureen. Mohawk journalist Dan David. In 1990... Both of them were stopped as they tried to get into the community and told to leave by police. Dan growled at the officers and got through. Lorene snuck in through the forest with some help. This is what I had been saying to Karen that the first morning when I arrived at 10.30 in the morning, yeah. and I really didn't know my way around. And some guy, Mohawk guy, just taps me on the shoulder. Follow me. We just came up through the golf course and through here. And you never... You, that's what it was just like, just became like, that was the way in. That's how we got medicine in, and we got food from across the river. There were collections over there and put them on the boats, and then there were boats out there. And then they brought in the police boats, and then we knew the way to get through the weeds, and the, there were sandbars out there. The police didn't know how many land defenders, the media dubbed them all warriors, were in the woods, or what kind of weapons they had. 
They could see some carrying Ruger Mini-14s, deer hunting rifles, and AK-47s, a light semi-automatic weapon, which was legal in Canada at the time. The truth was that the land defenders did not have enough people to hold the barricades if police moved in. For that reason, Mohawks restricted what reporters could see. Dan was in an impossible situation to report himself, with his family involved. So he assisted other media. I took him on the tour, you know, and he said, uh, what are the rules? I said, well, you've got to be blindfolded. And, but I said, you can just lift it up just a little bit because this is the biggest hoax going on. <laughs> said, There's just a few guys with some pea shooters compared to all the stuff that's out there. This is, <laughs> this is bluff. This is all bluff. This is the warrior behind every tree, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the cops, the, the cops stayed off. They wouldn't go into the woods. So, they stayed on the roads with their blockades. The thing about 1990, this was the beginning of the 24-hour news cycle in Canada. The fledgling CBC News Channel was about a year old. Good morning and welcome to News World Morning from Halifax. It was really like the training ground for 24-hour news cycle. It was like the first full summer of, of um, News World. And it was kind of like a made-for-News-World drama. Newspapers competed. Kinesatagi was the front-page story of almost every newspaper, the subject of daily editorials. Between July 9th and October 7th, a period of 90 days, the Toronto Star published 108 stories. The Globe and Mail published 195 the Montreal Gazette and La Presse ran close to 250 stories each. Many of the reporters arrived knowing nothing about Indigenous people or the history of stolen land. You know, reporters arrived here and they felt like it was just a, another demonstration, you know, with uh, Indians who were out of line, being unruly as usual, and there needed to be order put back into place. And, you know, they expected... Um, a 15 to 30 second clip and you just couldn't teach them a long 350 year history of what was going on in this community as a basis for their understanding. Ellen Gabriel found it especially frustrating. I think at the the very beginning they really had no no idea, no no research, no clue about indigenous issues and Canada's colonial history and I think as things evolved they were trying to do to play catch up a lot of times. Um, the European journalists actually came well-researched, knew about the Sulpician uh, Seminary of St. Sulpice, knew that history of Ganesadag. And I was, I was like, wow, you know, Canadian journalists don't even, <laughs> they don't even have a clue about, you know, the influence of um, this, you know, blue blood, rich um religious order that that landed here in Gunasadagan has created a unique situation of land dispossession. Initially, Canadian coverage focused on the possibility of violence, 
guns and warriors. In Ganesataki, there was some question about how, what kind of armaments uh, the uh, warriors had in there. No. The army suggested maybe a mortar, maybe some really tough uh, machine guns. What what have the Mohawks said about that? The Mohawks won't confirm or deny what they, ha what they have. I mean, I can tell you the people standing around me here, I guess I can see some kind of rifles. Uh, I've seen something that looks like semi-automatic uh, weapons. I'm not a weapons expert, but... Uh, Negotiations with the provincial government took place behind closed doors. There were daily press conferences. But in between, there was a lot of downtime. As, as the situation evolved, there were journalists who were sitting with people and, and talking to them, um, simply because they had nothing else to do. So they were talking to people and they weren't allowed past a certain point. And I know that some of their commentary was that they got our perspective and they they understood after a while what was going on. That's pretty much what happened to Laureen. Of those 76 days, I couldn't tell you exactly, but probably two-thirds of them, I was sleeping in my car in, you know, a sleeping bag behind the lines somewhere. So I had a lot of time to get to know the community. Laureen had a background in covering Indigenous rights, but this was her first time in a community that had so many written documents of its history. Once I was kind of stuck in the community and had lots of time to talk to people and lots of time to start, you know, listening to their family stories and picking through their trunks and looking at old photos and old newspaper clippings and realizing that this conflict, you know, that you could have used the same headlines a hundred years earlier. It's a long-standing tension between Indigenous communities and journalists. Indigenous people always want more context and history than newsrooms give. Ellen Gabriel. It wasn't just one incident. We were like, what the hell? We spent like a whole hour, you know, explaining these the issues to you about, you know, colonization and land dispossession and this, you know, the papal bulls and the doctrine of discovery. And, you know, you just totally ignored us. And they said, listen, we, we had our story, we edited it, and then our producers said, no. You, you have to cut this. Columnists on each side pulled out their knives. There were supporters for sure, but the rhetoric against the Mohawks was harsh, emotive, and sometimes blatantly racist. In the Saskatoon Star Phoenix, Les McPherson called Mohawk warriors a murderous menace. In the French language press, the racist term sauvage was used. La presse used terms like bandits, anti-démocratie, menace de fusil, a terrorist anglais. An Ottawa Citizen columnist, Marjorie Nichols, believed, quote, media managers to blame for phony media crisis. Or at least that was her headline. Marjorie wrote, efforts to elevate this outbreak of civil disobedience into an international human rights cause celeb is downright repugnant. This country may have blights upon its human rights landscape, but it certainly doesn't have to apologize for any lack of humanity or generosity in the treatment of its Native citizens. Adding that, Native people are coddled. What was written in the media manifested physically in protests and riots. Hundreds of sympathizers, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, flocked to a peace camp in Oka. Meanwhile, outside the Mercier Bridge blockade, hundreds of people gathered in the town of Chateauguay, they burnt effigies of Quebec Premier Bourassa and Mohawk warriors. 
This woman tried to defend the native's point of view. This man tried to defend the woman. Police separated him from the crowd and took him away. His sister argued with police trying to get her brother back. Can you tell me what happened? I got a phone call at home and my brother's been here. I want my brother back here home. He's not Indian. The people here say they're not racist. They're not against the Mohawk. They're just angry with a militant warrior society. Then in August, a crowd of Shadowgay residents gathered. Angry the police were not moving in. They turned on police in a violent riot that lasted for four days. How the media portrayed the Mohawk story mattered, because the use of force is pretty indefensible in response to a human rights issue, but a justified response to a criminal matter. Ellen Gabriel knew this. The French media definitely was like about les warriors and the guerriers and, and, and all that sort of... Um, sort of creating this climate of fear and justification of the use of force and that we were we were just essentially criminals who had hijacked the community we didn't want to be known as warriors we wanted to just simply be known you know as the Haudenosaunee people the you know the longhouse people and uh, it was the community not the warriors who put up the barricade there were incidents of vandalism and bad behavior that didn't look good it wasn't endorsed by the land defenders Mohawk women reined it in. And then the important role the women played throughout that summer in keeping the peace, telling the men, if you, you know, the police and the army are trying to provoke you, stay calm, because your actions will impact the rest of the community. Ellen wasn't the only one who saw a PR war coming. Apparently the feds did too. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care 
forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. On July 14th, the federal government organized a background briefing for journalists. Background briefings were common then. The idea is the government would give the media information with a little wink-wink, nudge-nudge, you didn't hear it from us. Such briefings were controversial. But generally, Hill reporters attended. Globe and Mail reporter Jeffrey York went. At this briefing, we're alleging that the warriors, uh, the Mohawk warriors, were merely a gang of criminals, talked about their criminal records, claimed that they had this uh, influx of heavy weaponry coming in from the United States, uh, smuggled across the river from uh, from the United States to uh, the Akwesasne Reserve uh, near Cornwall, uh, basically alleging that the the uh, the entire Oka cause had been hijacked by criminals. When Jeffrey questioned them, they weren't able to provide any details to back it up. Now they wanted to they wanted the media to report that without making it clear where the information was coming from and without making clear that this was federal spin rather than accepted fact. And that wasn't just any old bureaucrat at the meeting. It was Federal Deputy Minister of Indian Affairs Harry Swain. So I was able to persuade my editors at the Globe and Mail that we should not simply uh, kowtow to those rules, and instead we decided that we would report it with a clear attribution to the federal officials who were saying this. Other media outlets followed the Globe and Mail's lead. Negotiations continued throughout July and became complicated. Mohawks wanted to broaden the issues, The provincial minister leading the negotiations could not get his cabinet on board. The feds, though barely at the table, would not consider any discussion about Mohawk sovereignty. Good evening. Tough talk, angry words. The stakes are getting higher in the bitter land claims dispute at Oka, Quebec. The Quebec government came out today and blamed the Mohawks for scuttling a deal that could have ended the bitter siege. And the federal government says it won't negotiate as long as the Indian barricades stay up. As for the Mohawks, they're sticking to their new list of demands. And it's not just Oka they're talking about anymore. It's become an international affair. The Akwesasne Reserve in New York State is is tied in now to any talks. Our coverage begins with Neil MacDonald behind Indian lines in Oka. As time passed, it seemed the barricades would only come down by force. On August 8, Premier Boursaw invoked the National Defence Act and asked Prime Minister Brian Mulroney to send the military to intervene in the crisis. On August 20th, the army was deployed to Gunasatage. More than 300 infantry and 60 armoured vehicles moved from San Benoit to Oka. Their mission is a peaceful one for the moment, to take over from provincial police, exhausted after 40 days of barricade duty. On August 27th, Prime Minister Brian Mulroney called the Mohawk demands bizarre. On August 29th, for the first time, Mulroney called the Mohawk warriors terrorists in the press. This brings us to Act 3, a full court press on the media. Jeff went to report from Kinestagi for the Globe. I remember trying to sneak up from the village to the uh, site where the Mohawks were based and 
Uh, the first time I did it, the police caught me and threw me back. Uh, and, uh, and then a few hours later, I was able to get through and, and get up to the to where the Mohawks were. And there was a number of other journalists, was probably uh, a couple dozen uh, journalists who were with the Mohawks at that point, uh, late August, September 1st, and so on. On September 2nd, the Army put razor wire around the community. The negotiators do not believe them. Their suspicions are confirmed when they see the army advancing. On September 3rd, they told reporters inside Kanisatagi that if they left, they would not be allowed back in. You got anything for asthma? I can't come in here. I have, in order for me to treat you, I have to... If I leave, I can't come back. Okay. You're not going to give me any medicine unless I leave here and you take me away. Are you the commander, sir? Yes, I am. Can you explain to me how we can be taken into custody when we're not accused of a crime? Meanwhile, Lorraine had left Ganesatagi, but she rushed back to get in while she still could. On that September long weekend, when the army moved in on the sort of last holdouts in Ganesatagi and contained them to uh, the treatment centre, um, the drama was unbelievable. That's what people will remember, the face-to-face of, like, the warriors facing down Canadian soldiers and, like... I think for the first day or so, or perhaps two days, uh, people were coming and going. Um, And that was helpful for the television crews that were able to, you know, take their film out uh, and and for the photographers to get their their film out. But within a, a day or two, that was stopped. So it was not possible to come and go. So... At that point, um, you know, within a couple of days, uh, a number of journalists left. Journalists inside were having trouble getting supplies. Julian Shear, then the president of the Canadian Association of Journalists, tried to reason with the army. So a handful of journalists uh, are behind the lines with the Indigenous people. And because the Internet didn't exist as a news source and because cell phones were quite primitive... They became the lifeline. They were the only way we could find out what was happening from the inside. Of course, there were TV cameras and news crews on the outside, but it meant you weren't, you weren't seeing at least half the story and you were pretty much only getting the military's point of view. So uh, what journalists were doing became vitally important. The problem was is that as the days grew, grew on, um, they were facing not only the usual problems of food and, and shelter, but they needed supplies to continue their work, uh, specifically as something as small as power for their cell phones. And so it became for the Canadian Association of Journalists and for media owners a kind of vital battle for media rights. We saw all the time incidents that would not be reported by the military. Confrontations, often they happened at night. Uh, there was no witnesses except uh, a handful of, of journalists that were there. Uh, one of the uh, worst incidents uh, was when some of the soldiers went into the Mohawk side of the barricade, uh, into the Mohawk uh, perimeter. That was September 7th. According to the Army... And this is what they told the media on the outside. A Mohawk warrior had jumped the barricade and attacked soldiers with a knife. The soldiers fought back, and they had minor wounds. 
Reporters on the inside knew differently. I start yelling and they start beating me with something on the head. About 25 times there was three guys holding me down. The warrior's condition is reported to Major Tremblay by a military paramedic. Your uh, guys need to be sent to a trauma center. I'm going to promise you that he's going to be brought back as soon as he's okay. Okay, he's not to be interrogated by no one or anything? No, not at all. Can I have that right, please? In writing, I cannot do that and you know that. Okay. You're going to have to take my word. His life is, his life is more important. important to me. That's right. Right. It is the most important thing to me right now. It's the same thing for us. Um, evidently not. But that's neither here nor there on that right now. The morning that Spud Wrench was beaten up and I just saw his bloodied and battered face and I was very upset. The warrior, Randy Horn, or codename Spud Wrench, had been sleeping by the barricade. It was the soldiers who jumped the fence. He woke up saw them there, uh, there was a confrontation, a physical uh, clash, and, uh, you know, it was two or three soldiers against one uh, Mohawk, uh, and they beat him very badly. He was bleeding, he needed medical treatment, in fact, he needed hospital treatment. Sneaking into the compound to beat the shit out of Spud Wrench, you know, that didn't make the Canadian military, who said they didn't want any bloodshed, didn't make them look very good, right? Spudrench had a concussion and needed 50 stitches. A doctor was called in, who demanded he be taken to the hospital. Julian Shear says a decision was made in Ottawa to get journalists out. What we now know, we didn't know at the time, we were just making pleas for basic democracy, is that the government was engaged in an information war. This was being flashed around the world, right? The, not just the famous photos, uh, but, but the reports. And so Ottawa decided quite consciously that they wanted to cut off communication um, from, from behind the lines. And so um, this deputy minister revealed that the cabinet decided, the PCO, the Privy Council, decided that, in his words, the, the media circus, as he called it, had to end. The CBC denied that it gave into pressure, but it did pull out its reporters on September 7th. The official reason was that they no longer had insurance to cover us, you know, war, wartime coverage insurance to cover us and we had to leave. Um, so at the very end, there were perhaps a dozen journalists who were left with the Mohawks in the very final hours. So uh, basically, you know, all the major television channels, CBC and CTV, were pulled out. And at that point, I think only about uh, 12 or, or 13 journalists remained. A, a number of them were freelancers. I was really the only uh, full-time journalist for a national uh, media outlet. We were filing our stories uh, on these very old-fashioned cell phones that were the size of a brick. Uh, and I was just sort of dictating my, my story over the phone to an editor in Toronto. And the other, other reporters are basically doing the same with their editors. On September 13th, the Sarté de Québec got a court order to cut off the cell phones. They told the court journalists were lending their phones to the warriors to engage in criminal activity. It's unclear what evidence they had, if any. One of the problems was that this order was obtained without any response, without any opportunity for the media to respond. 
But the police didn't have all the cell phone numbers. So the reporters shared the ones that still worked. They could still get stories out on the remaining cell phones, but getting tape and pictures out was now impossible. Reporters on the outside still attended military briefings, and they wanted photos and video. So on September 15th, the Army let them get closer to take some pictures, but with conditions. They all got bulletproof vests. The Army finally allows journalists to approach the front of the treatment center. So they were brought in an escorted trip uh, several hundred meters up the road to this point of standoff between the military armored vehicles and the Mohawks, where they were separated by this road. But the order was given by the military that the journalists were not allowed to speak to the Mohawks or to the journalists on the other side. Uh, but this was the first opportunity that the photographers had, for example, to get their film out of the Mohawk side of the confrontation because they were not allowed to come and go. So the, the, some of the photographers on the Mohawk side took their camera film and tossed it across the road to the journalists hoping to get it out. And the military intercepted some of this and then were escorted back. Yeah, it was surreal. There had been accusations that the press was picking sides. It's a frequent allegation against reporters. I can tell you that balancing all sides in a story like this one without false balancing is not easy. But two accusations that came out were just bizarre. The Sarté de Québec put out a press release accusing the English-language media of favoring the Mohawks. They said the media was upset about the failure of the Meech Lake Accord. A second accusation came from Brigadier General Armand Roy at a press conference on September 16. There was a senior military officer who, who was the first to talk about the journalists who were uh, still behind the lines at the end, suffering from Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome refers to a phenomenon where victims in a hostage-taking develop sympathy for their captors. This allegation about Stockholm Syndrome was completely ridiculous, uh, but it was a way to discredit a particular cause. It was a way to discredit the Indigenous cause, actually, uh, by saying anybody who was reporting accurately about what was happening or anybody who was giving a fair shake to the Mohawks must be somehow embedded, captive, hostage, psychologically affected by Stockholm Syndrome and therefore biased and therefore could be ignored. The journalists were not hostages. They were free to leave. I left after about three weeks, um, which was just two or three days before the standoff ended. Um, and that was because my editors basically decided uh, that, you know, on a cost-benefit basis, there wasn't as much benefit anymore to having me there. But at the same time, what was happening was there was, there was pressure. The real pressure was increasing from the military and the police. Documentary filmmaker Alaniza Bomsman spoke to Jeff as he left. Hey, Jeffrey. Jeffrey York of the Globe and Mail leaves the treatment centre. There's only two reporters left for mainstream newspapers. There's no CBC reporters left. There's no, no broadcast reporters at all. Well, I think the thing that's the most unbelievable is that in a country like Canada, we're allowing the army to tell us what, uh, what can be published in our newspapers and what can be put on our uh, nightly news. The standoff ended on September 26. Negotiations had fallen apart. 
The land defenders did not surrender. They did not believe they'd done anything wrong. They simply left to walk home. At first, the army was surprised. They rallied and made arrests. We never surrendered. It was an exit. It was like being in a twilight zone. We never did the expected thing. It was always the unexpected, and they, they weren't ready. The tape, which is chaotic, captures soldiers tackling and pinning down the Mohawks as they try to walk out. That tape only exists because a few media stayed to the end. Ellen was not always pleased with reporters, but those moments when land defenders feared the worst, the journalists were all they had. They were the witnesses for the rest of the world if any tragedy was to happen. I, f- I think people, a lot of people felt this is the end. The army is coming in, there, there could be casualties. And so this for us was the, the only, like this, this very thin line of protection that we had. And the journalists, I think when, when they were told to leave and you know, the signals were being jammed from, from those who did have uh, uh, phones, it's, it's, it's very daunting. It's, you, think, you think the worst because your witnesses are gone. And, you know, we were, we were the villains, you know, all, that whole time. At the end of the dispute, public opinion polls showed high support for the Mohawks and for the settling of Indigenous land claims. In November 1990, a symposium was held for Army public relations officers and journalists about communications during the resistance. The head of public affairs for Canada's armed forces told the room that if he was ever in a similar situation to the standoff at Kanestagi, there's one thing he'd do differently. He'd get the media out sooner. And that's exactly what police did five years later at Gustafson Lake. Almost all of the land in BC is unceded territory. And that's how Percy Rosette saw it. BC had long refused to acknowledge Indigenous title. In the 1990s, it did begin a treaty process to resolve land claims. But Gustafson Lake didn't start as a land claim. Percy Rosette's spiritual name was Two Rocks. As the Kepmec faith keeper, he wanted to revive a sacred ceremony known as the Sundance. Gustafson Lake, a few years back, well, the older people, the elders, as you called, and uh, much of the searching for spiritual avenues for to help our people. According to Percy, 28 Sundancers went on a vision quest to determine where the Sundance should be held. Three returned, having a vision of the dance at Gustafson Lake. Gustafson Lake was an isolated place down a rough back road more than 35 kilometers from the nearest town of a 100-mile house. The visions of the Sundancers made the land at Gustafson Lake especially sacred to Percy. The land always goes to the babies and the unborn and we're the keepers of that land. A cattle rancher named Lal James held grazing rights on the land. 
1989, Percy and Lyle shook hands, agreeing the Sundance could be held there. Each year, about 400 people attended. Over time, Lyle had second thoughts. He and Percy signed an agreement to end the Sundances in 1995. The agreement included a promise not to erect any permanent structures. Lyle seemed to be worried about a claim on his land. What Lyle didn't know is that Percy had hired a lawyer. That year, Percy and his wife had also built a cabin on the land. The Sundancers also restored a fence to keep cattle off of the Sundance grounds. Lyle and some of his ranch hands showed up at the camp with an eviction notice. Lyle said the meeting was peaceful. The Sundancers said the ranch hands threatened them. John Hill, a Mohawk, also known as Splitting the Sky, was the Sundance chief that year and became the spokesperson for the camp. He said they were worried about violence from the ranch hands or a raid by police. All right, what's going on here? Well, we're just making, uh, at this point, we're making preparations for the eventuality of nothing less than an invasion by the RCMP. And the reason for this is, is that we heard a report over the weekend. There was a, a report that was put out by the, uh, the Minister of Indian Affairs in, of British Columbia that basically said that they did not recognize our presence here as legitimate. The Sundance was held in early July, and after, about 20 men, women and children stayed behind. They wanted their day in court. About 10 rifles, a bow and three arrows, and an AK-47 were brought into the camp. That caused the RCMP to treat the matter as a criminal case. A 31-day armed standoff began August 18, 1995. On one side, a small band of armed natives occupying private ranch land in Lake Gustafson. On the other, the RCMP, who say they will not tolerate the situation much longer. The RCMP would deploy 400 tactical assault team members, five helicopters, two surveillance planes, and nine armoured personnel carriers on loan from the Canadian Army against 20 people, which included elders and children. As for the media, a PR war started almost immediately. Both the Sundancers and the police invited journalists to cover the story. The Sundance is sacred, and normally the media, or any outsider, is not welcome. But that July, Sundancers invited the local paper, a TV station, and a documentary team into the camp. Not to tape the Sundance, but to explain their case. We're going nowhere until this matter is resolved on the highest levels, and only the Queen herself and her Lord of Wars and the Privy Council can intervene right now to address the questions that have been put up before. What we've got here is the ongoing process of colonization that must be stopped and addressed at this moment. And On August 19th, the RCMP booked a flight for reporters to a town near Gustafson Lake, where they held a press conference. They played a piece of footage from the documentary showing guns inside the camp. District Superintendent Leo Olfert told media the Sundancers were, quote, a small group of terrorists and, quote, prepared to use weapons. A few days later, Percy followed with a press release ensuring that the Sundancers were seeking, quote, a peaceful resolution to a crisis which has been going on for 139 years. Some media visited the camp, but on August 26, the RCMP cut off all media access. They cut the camp's cellular phone and told journalists who were near the camp to leave. By the next morning, they'd set up a checkpoint 20 miles from the camp, and for the next 22 days, right up until the standoff ended, 
journalists had only the RCMP's side of the story. They received twice-daily briefings at press conferences held in the Red Coach Inn in the nearby town of 100 Mile House. Outraged journalists grilled BC's Attorney General, Ussel Desange, about media access. His response? Some of them are saying, well, you know, where is the other side of the story? And the police uh, did not allow the other side of the story to come out. There is no other side of the story. There's only one side of the story. Kim Goldberg, a freelance columnist, was shocked. Uh, I think it was really problematic. And I don't even know how they completely how they managed to get away with that, but it it probably was one of the first exclusion zones, which have now become a thing. I think the exclusion zone combined with this really overt disinformation campaign just resulted in Gustafson not getting proper coverage for the most part and being portrayed in a negative light. An overt disinformation campaign. This is what Kim is talking about. This is an internal recording of an RCMP meeting on September 1st. The voice is RCMP Superintendent Len Alford. We only want people that can help us now. No, no. These two can't. Okay. Did you find somebody today that can help us with a disinformation or a smear campaign? Media Relations Officer Peter Montague responds. Smear campaigns are, are special. During the standoff, RCMP were recording a training video and captured that conversation on tape. Portions of it would be released later during the trial. An internal communications plan with the subhead, quote, Wolverine and his band of thugs, advocated releasing criminal records of the Sundancers to the media, which the RCMP did. They released the rap sheets of nine individuals. Many of the charges were 20 years old. None were outstanding. But the really odd thing was that most of those people on the list weren't actually in the camp. The Gustafson indigenous people at the standoff were portrayed as armed rebels, radicals, thugs, fringe group. It was tended to be the language used in talking about them in the, in the media. Throughout the standoff, the RCMP and politicians, including Yussel Desange, openly called the Sundancers terrorists and criminals. Then there were the gunfire exchanges. According to the RCMP, each was started by the Sundancers opening fire. Reporters had no way to fact check. Here are two examples. At a press conference on September 4th, the RCMP told the media Sundancers had stalked a paramilitary unit and opened fire. It is possible the RCMP actually believed that was true at the time. A unit traveling in a truck heard a pop and saw that the side view mirror was broken. They believed it had been hit by a bullet and opened fire on no one. No one was there. Two years later, when the RCMP was forced to disclose internal documents in the courts, it became clear the RCMP had misled the media. According to an internal RCMP investigation, later disclosed in court, it was actually a tree that hit the side mirror of the unit's truck, and RCMP knew this two hours after that press conference. But they never issued a correction to the media. Even more serious were allegations made on September 11th. Media relations officer Montague told a press conference that the Sundancers had driven a truck into a no-go zone. Three armed people emerged and fired weapons. Hundreds of rounds were exchanged. Three of the Sundancers were injured, including a woman who'd been shot in the arm. 
At that time, police were communicating with the camp by radio. The signal was not private. Reporters heard Percy Rosette shouting at police. He said, You people started firing first. It was a bomb. It contradicted the official story. Legally, that information should not have been reported because the law says the permission of at least one party is needed to publish a recording. Journalists could not communicate with the camp to get their permission. The RCMP had already threatened to stop talking to the media if any of them published anything they heard on radio communications. But doing so was the only way to get the other side of the story. The Vancouver Sun ran the quotes. As it turned out, Percy was telling the truth. At the trial, two police videos show what really happened. The first video, taped by the RCMP, shows soldiers laying explosives and a tripwire across the road. The second video is from a police helicopter. A red truck drives down a dusty road. Suddenly there's an explosion, then thick smoke. An armored personnel carrier barrels down the road and rams the front of the truck. A light-colored dog escapes the truck. The dog is shot and killed by police. Two people, a man and a woman, emerge from the truck and run. They are unarmed. Police begin shooting at them. They head for a lake and start swimming. Bullets hit the water. They raise their hands. The woman is shot in her arm. According to the Sundancers, the truck was going to get water. For Kim, many questions remain. All of this uh, military force being brought to bear against what was basically a, a handful of indigenous people trying to perform a Sundance ceremony on a settler's cattle ranch on the land. I mean, it was just, it seemed incredible the level of conflict that was generated basically by the provincial government and their, and their refusal to have any kind of uh, proper interaction. I mean, I don't even see why the, the people couldn't have been accommodated uh, with the Sundance ceremony. And instead, this huge, grotesque overreaction ensued. Local leaders did not support the standoff. They also didn't want bloodshed. It was First Nations leaders and a spiritual leader who eventually convinced the Sundancers to come out. Eighteen adults inside the camp would ultimately be charged with mischief, trespassing, and endangering lives, and receive sentences ranging from six months to four and a half years. At the Gnistagi resistance, it's probably fair to say the journalists who were embedded with the Mohawks became sympathetic. Not because they had Stockholm Syndrome, but because they learned the Mohawk side of the story and the history of the land claim. Columnists who never went near the standoff, who never interviewed the land defenders, stuck to stereotypes and a law and order narrative that turned the Mohawks into criminals. And it's probably true that journalists were, as Ellen said, a very thin line of protection between the land defenders and police. Journalists were eyewitnesses to the beating of Spud Wrench and effectively countered the Army's version of events that night. We don't know, and may never really know, all that happened at Gustafson Lake, behind the exclusion zone. The Sundancers felt there was a side to the story that has never been told. For years, they've called for a public inquiry. That never happened. I see the latest exclusion zones as an outcome of the 1990s. The police and the state keeping journalists away to control the story, to justify violence if necessary. That's what I think. Police will tell you differently. We asked the OPP and the RCMP for comment on the recent arrests of journalists. Only the RCMP replied. 
This is a portion of a statement from the RCMP E-Division. There are both privacy and safety concerns in keeping the public and the media at the perimeter, which should be as small as possible and as brief as possible in the circumstances based on security and safety needs. Police can shrink or expand the perimeter as required based on security and safety. The RCMP respects the fundamental freedom of the press under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms as detailed in recent decisions by courts across Canada. When enforcing a court-ordered injunction, we make every reasonable effort to allow media personnel to get as close as possible to the enforcement area while ensuring no interference with police operations. We'll link to the full statement in the show notes. Next time on Canada Land Back, we're talking with women who are taking back their rightful place as leaders in their nations. Canada Land Back is hosted by Karen Pugliese. That's me. This episode was produced by Karen Pugliese and Kim Wheeler. This episode also had support from Beverly Andrews and Kara McKenna. Canada Land Back is a co-production between Canada's National Observer and Canada Land. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Majoshin. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.